that we are calling uh, the Global Commons. My name is Amin Lutfi. I am the coordinator for the Asia Arabia event. Um, before introducing the speakers and handing out the mic, I just want to lay out what we are trying to do as part of this series called the Global Commons. Basically, the idea in the series is to look at the issue of uh, security and protection in areas that are not under the sovereign control of any one state, but are essential for several of them. Uh, the perfect example of, the, of such spaces are the world's oceans. Now, the idea is that, that since basically the World War II, the protection of the oceans has been largely taken as the responsibility of the United States. And that's seen this as one of the essential services that it provides to the world as the, as, as the leading power is to keep free trade open in the ocean. Now, the problem comes now with China rising as a global power and also there being a turn uh, due to various reasons, uh, mostly domestic reasons within the United States, where they're now retreating back from their commitment to internationalism. Now, the future of, because of these two shifts, China's rising and U.S.'s turn inward, the future of the ocean remains in question. So this is a question that we want to ask throughout the year, but to kick off this talk, we want to focus, we want to go into one specific part of the world uh, close to us, which is the South China Sea. Now I want to invite our speakers today. We have three speakers, three distinguished speakers with us today who will give us very different perspective on this question. We'll start off with the chairman of the Middle East Institute, Mr. Bilahari Koshikan, who needs no introduction telling us, giving us a big picture about the conflict between U.S. and China and its implication for the world at large. We'll follow up with, uh, with Mr. Kosikan to uh, Dr. Colin Koh from RSIS. Dr. Colin Koh is a research fellow at the Institute of Defense and Strategic Cities, uh, Studies, and he's also the coordinator of the U.S. program at RSIS. Dr. Ko will take us into South China Sea and tell us what does this conflict between China and the U.S. look like from that from from South China Sea's perspective. And after Colin Ko, we'll go into a part of the world that we here at the Middle East are very interested in, which is the Persian Gulf, with Dr. Abdullah Baboud taking the conversation that started by, by Bilahari and Colin Ko into the Persian Gulf and tell us what, this con what, what the U.S. and China conflict looks like for that region as well. Uh, I would ask uh, Bilahari to take maybe 15 minutes to start it off, and then Dr. Konko, you can maybe take about 30 minutes to give a more longer explanation about South China Sea. And, then uh, Abdullah uh, Bahudni, you can take about 15 minutes as well. That leaves about 30 minutes in the end for question and answer. So thank you, everyone. And I'll hand over to Mr. Bilahari. Okay, thank you. Um, I shall try to be very brief. First of all, I don't see that there's anything particularly unusual or exceptional in U.S.-China strategic competition. This kind of uh, competition is inherent in the nature of international relations. Um, and uh, so there's nothing to explain really, you know. And it is very traditional great power competition of the usual kind. 
And this competition, except for very short and exceptional periods where it has usually gotten into trouble, the US, since the end of the Second World War, has been the offshore balancer. Um, the exception, of course, was in the Korean War, which was a mistake because it kind of de it kind of defined its defense perimeter with too much clarity, leading to miscalculation on the other side. And the other time when he got into even bigger trouble is, of course, in the Middle East, uh, in Iraq in 2003. Otherwise, if you look at the pattern of U.S. activity in the world as a great power, it has always been the offshore balancer. Minor intervening here and there, but basically staying offshore. And that's the basic role he has played in Asia. Again, the one exception which got into trouble is the Vietnam War or the Indochina conflict. And in 1969, I think the U.S. role as the offshore balancer has been made very clear through the Nixon Doctrine, which basically said, and I'm summarizing, you all are going to have to take more responsibility of your own for your own defense from now on. It's not, I am not going to get involved on the mainland of Asia anymore. Now, an offshore balancer's relationships with his friends and his allies always oscillates between fear of entanglement on the part of, the, of his friends and allies if the offshore balancer is too aggressive and fear of abandonment if it is too passive. And that has been the U.S. fate. Sometimes you have called it, and more recently, you have called it retreat. But remember, U.S. policy oscillates. It has always oscillated. It moves in waves and troughs. You have to understand both the waves and the troughs, but not make the mistake of thinking that either is a permanent condition. Um, let me say a few words with that broad framing about the South China Sea, because I don't think Colin will agree with me. Or he may agree with me, but not in every particular. I think that the situation in the South China Sea is very largely a stalemate. Uh, the US is not going to be able to make the China either scale down its ridiculously wide claims almost over, what, 80-something percent of the South China Sea, uh, or make the Chinese dig up those artificial islands it has constructed and throw the sandbank in the sea, or in time, it's not going to be able to stop the Chinese from deploying military assets on those islands. On the other hand, the Chinese are not going to be able to deter the U.S. operating in the South China Sea, over the South China Sea, through the South China Sea, unless it's willing to risk war. And I don't think the Chinese are willing to risk war because although the Chinese military has made great strides, I think there is no doubt, including in the minds of the Chinese, what the outcome of that war will be. The best outcome will be a stalemate, uh, you know, a draw. And that would be quite disastrous for the Communist Party. Uh, those islands, and even if you deploy military assets on them, are from a military point of view quite useless. If there is ever a conflict between 
a serious conflict between the US and China, those islands will disappear within the first half hour. So what is their purpose? What are the purpose of those claims? They are much more political, I think, than military or strategic. They are meant to intimidate the other claimant states. They are meant to demonstrate China's new status and position. And they are meant to put some meat on the bones of that revanchist narrative of rejuvenation by which the Communist Party of China now justifies its rule. Uh, it's, it's a very revanchist narrative because it's a narrative of that for 200 years, for 100 years, I've been humiliated, I've lost a lot of stuff, now I'm back, I'm going to take it back. But in reality, they can't take it back. Most of what is lost is now the Russian Far East. Uh, most of what, another big, big piece of what they lost is Mongolia. One part belongs to Russia. Uh, one small part belongs to Russia, the rest is an independent country. And most of all, what they have lost is Taiwan. Can they get it back? Again, it risks a big war with the US. I'm not saying war is not going to occur in a state system, that's always a possibility. But if it occurs, it will be by accident, not by uh, a deliberate design. One more point about the South China Sea. I think, uh, I think you started by saying that the US is retreating from its commitment to internationalism. Well, I think you have to look at that commission to uh, both the idea of retreat and the idea of uh, commitment to internationalism very carefully. Uh, first of all, I don't see how you can, well, first of all, you may agree with Mr. Trump's policies, you may disagree with Mr. Trump's policies, but since he has made explicit his, his intention, made explicit both in word and deed, to compete robustly, not just with China, but with Russia, I don't see how you can uh, accurately describe that as a retreat. Also, the commitment to internationalism has to be very carefully examined. As I said in the beginning, US policy oscillates. It oscillates between an emphasis on multilateralism to an emphasis on unilateralism and bilateralism. It oscillates between a commitment to free trade and an emphasis on fair trade. It oscillates in many polls over many issues. And that's the general pattern of American foreign policy. Um, if you look at the whole post-World War II period, or you look at the whole 20th century, why not? The period of clear American commitment to internationalism was actually very, very short. Maybe 20 odd years from 1989, when the Berlin Wall went down, to say 2008, 2009, when the global financial crisis broke out. In the early part of the 20th century, America was only sporadically involved in international affairs. Now those sporadic interventions were often very decisive as his intervention in the First World War and the Second World War, and so on. But more often, it was the American commitment to internationalism was only half an equation. It was never uncontested, either internationally or within America. So only a very short, exceptional period that we now mistake for the norm. One last point. You know, the American positions, I have always had this suspicion 
about American position on the South China Sea, people forget that it has been a very reluctant player on the South China Sea. When it first became a major issue in the mid-1990s, I remember the ASEAN countries had really to work very hard to get the US to declare a position on the South China Sea. It just wasn't interested. It wasn't interested because its attitude was, I don't care, I can operate here, who's going to stop me? So that's all your, these small disputes and, you know, uh, all your problem, not mine. And this thing about being upholding a rules-based order is a rather relative de uh, development in U.S. policy towards the South China Sea. Before that, the pendulum was, at, the oscillation was on the unilateral side. Their attitude very explicitly, very explicitly articulated was, who's going to stop me? I don't care. Huh? So you want to have this, this, I don't care whether this little island or atoll or reef belongs to China or Vietnam or Philippines. You know, this is trivial. Even today, I think there is less difference between the Chinese position in the South China Sea and the American position that either would care to admit or they pretend. Look at it. There is no difference in their position of what is allowed in territorial waters, whether in the South China Sea or any other ocean. There's no difference in their position about what is allowed on the high seas, whether in the South China Sea, that there are little bits that are not uh, territorial waters or thing. And you remember, I think, Colin, you will correct me, is it 2015 when there was a RIMPAC exercise? And the Chinese were invited, they, they participated, and they also sent a spy ship to snoop around <coughs> in the same way that the Americans sent spy ships to snoop around. And what was interesting about the episode in 2005 is unasked, the Ministry of Defense of China issued a statement that could have been written by the Seventh Fleet. Basically, they said, this kind of activity is allowed. <laughs> in EEZs, which is exactly the American position. Later on, they have kept quiet about their subsequent excursions because I think they realized they made a mistake. My point here is that a country's concepts, interpretations of international law are very often a function of its capabilities. China can only launch that kind of surveillance mission now sporadically. And that's why it does not use that justification that these things are actually allowed, except for that one time that I can uh, check, that I, can, that I know of. But if China's um, capabilities develop as they will, you might see their concepts of what is allowed in EZ also change. <laughs> uh, you know, the, I have some sympathy although it's a disingenuous argument, for the Chinese argument that I do not interfere with freedom of navigation, despite my claims. Uh, the American counter-argument is also valid that you know, there's a difference between freedom of navigation uh, as a favor given by some major power or as a right enshrined international law. But what the Americans don't say is they have not signed UNCLOS either, and they say they abide by UNCLOS as customary international law. That is also a disingenuous argument 
because it also means that I am abiding it by my leave and favor, by my political convenience, not as a legal right. Anyway, enough of that. One last point. When we look at US-China competition, we pay far too much attention to the sea. I think there's nothing unusual about the Chinese trying to develop from a land continental power into a maritime power because they have become a major trading nation. And there isn't in history any major trading nation that has not been a maritime power. Uh, they are still very far behind the US. And don't forget, they are trying to catch up with a moving target. Huh? The US is not static either. Um, but by and large, on the sea where they are competing now, which is the South China Sea and a bit of the Pacific, it's more or less a stalemate. We don't pay enough attention to what is happening on land, particularly in Southeast Asia. The dams that the Chinese are constructing on the, in the upper reaches of the Mekong, and in fact, the upper reaches, not just of the Mekong, but of all the major Asian rivers, originate in Chinese territory, and indisputable Chinese territory gives them a strategic advantage that has been insufficiently studied. Uh, recently, of course, this is not going to be very relevant to the Middle East or the Persian Gulf, but recently, you might have noticed a study of satellite photographs that, and other data that has shown that the droughts that have plagued the, the Mekong countries, in the lower Mekong countries, are actually being caused not by natural causes, but may have been caused or contributed to by Chinese damming activity in the upper reaches. And that is of greater potential strategic significance, I think, than anything that's happening in the South China Sea. And I'll stop here. By the way, what time are we supposed to finish? Huh? Um, I mean, 4.30. 4.30. Huh? 4.30. Okay, that's fine. Thanks. All right, I'll stop here. All right. Thank you, Bilahari. Uh, we'll go to Dr. Colin Ko. Can't hear you, Colin. You're on mute. Sorry, can you hear me now? Yes. Okay, thank you so much. Thanks, uh, Ambassador Bilahari, and also thanks, uh, MEI, for inviting me uh, for this conversation. I just want to make a few brief points, China, because... Uh, uh, Ambassador Biahari has already covered quite a bit of uh, what I actually wanted to cover and I do actually agree with you know, the points they have raised. I just want to give a sort of context to what we have seen recently um, in the context of the pandemic uh, currently. So, you know, I think uh, there are some commentaries out there uh, recently about what China is doing, the South China Sea, and arguing that, you know, there is a new pattern of what China is currently um, doing in the South China Sea when it comes to you know, the installation of new research stations, um, the, 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 the creation of two separate administrative districts uh, for the Paracels and the Spratly Islands, and you know, the host of coercive activities. These are new activities that take place under the pandemic. I mean, to me, this is rather sensationalist. There is nothing really new uh, in terms of the pattern that we see. The only new thing that we see is the context of the pandemic that gives China what I will call a window of opportunity to pursue essentially what it has planned to pursue uh, long ago. And it all actually dated back, you know, in the very, um, you know, initial beginnings of Xi Jinping's, uh, you know, coming to office back in 2012 when he actually emphasized that, you know, China's maritime 
sovereignty and rights had to be secured. And, you know, he actually advocated a much more muscular approach in doing that. And since 2012, we've been seeing, you know, a sort of a gradual ramping up of China's more muscular approach in the South China Sea anyway. So if we could put an explanation to what we saw recently in the South China Sea, we could, you know, see from the initial beginnings of the outbreak of the coronavirus, these moves will be deemed as necessary to distract public attention in China from the CCP's handling of the crisis by rallying the nation around a nationalistic agenda. So it is a form of externalization. And of course, it is necessary, I mean, as far as, you know, the PLA especially is concerned, you know, it is important because you need to be proactive amidst speculations on whether the military recently, you know, was being affected by the outbreak. It's not the US military. Because, you know, at the very beginning, PLA was also mired in speculations about whether it has been subjected um, to the infections and how ready uh, it was when it comes to the various, you know, flashpoints in a region like the South China Sea. So you found that actually the PLA in the recent times has been more proactive, especially, you know, in terms of reporting um, the FONOPS by the U.S. Navy. I mean, this was rather unprecedented. It used to be the U.S. side being the first to announce, be it through the former press release or through so-called leaked information to the Western media, uh, by which, you know, they will talk about FONOPS being conducted. But, you know, in the very recent FONOPS, we saw that the Chinese were the ones who initiated reporting about the FONOPS to show that they are proactive. It is in as much for domestic audience and as for the external. And of course, the current coercion, I mean, if we take uh, what we saw in China, uh, you know, with some sort of uh, face value of what they, they, they claim to be success in defeating the virus and gradually recovering from it, is, it is a continuation. But in so far, what we saw as, you know, um, long-term disturbing trends of China's economy and, you know, social stability uh, in the coming years from the pandemic itself, I think there are some issues to be worried. Uh, I mean, one is certainly concerning Xi Jinping's idea about a Chinese dream of achieving a moderately prosperous middle-income nation uh, in at least one more decade's time. And the pandemic comes in to sort of wreck up the entire uh, game plan. So what we saw is, you know, notwithstanding China's state propaganda that, you know, things are going well, we are recovering robustly. I think there are some undercurrent uh, beneath all this propaganda, I think one is to, to deal with the bad consumer sentiments in China, uh, despite the picking up of exports. Uh, you know, since, you know, what happened in the past three months, um, the unemployment levels that, you know, the, the figures are disputed. The Chinese state media uh, is rather candid about the issue of unemployment. But the one thing they have not revealed to the public is to what extent has unemployment been so bad? in China. And there were some existing reports that could have indicated that the unemployment rate could have been much worse than has been emitted by China. And of course, you know, generally it sets back the CCP's nationwide poverty elevation goal that is instrumental in achieving that Chinese dream uh, that Xi Jinping has in mind. So therefore, you know, it brings me to the context that we're going to see this year and the next, especially because next year, 
will be the centennial of the Communist Party. They're going to celebrate the 100-year anniversary. There's a need to show report card. External you know, achievements might be necessary if the domestic uh, situation uh, isn't uh, you know, going on very well. So as far as the South China Sea is concerned, uh, Beijing is only been able to uphold current arrangements with, say, Duterte's Philippines as a shining example of how China and the rival uh, claimants in the South China Sea have been able to promote cooperation so far. Whereas with the rest, I mean, it has been more or less in a stalemate. So, you know, but the one thing that I want to really add on is, you know, contrary to those commentaries that China is seeking to unilaterally exploit energy resources in the disputed waters, I think more importantly is to note that China's goal ultimately is to attain bilateral joint development deals. I mean, it has been buoyed by the existing success with Vietnam in the Gulf of Tonkin back in the early 2000s and more recent agreement with the Philippines to agree to ex jointly explore the prospect of development and now is seeking the same arrangements with other claimants. With Malaysia, I mean, this has been you know, an ongoing proposal by China. But, you know, it's quite apparent that Kuala Lumpur hasn't been, you know, taking up the offer and China has been subtly trying to nudge uh, Malaysia into that direction, but failed so far. So it could at least in part explain the strategic motivation behind the recent West Capella standoff of Sarawak. And, you know, by and large, I would, I mean, access that China is using these uh, current window opportunity that is uh, being given by the pandemic such that the ASEAN claimants have been very, very busy trying to grapple with the, the, the virus outbreak. And of course, you know, the perceived problems that um, the US military seems to be facing when it comes to, you know, promoting a forward deployed presence in the region in order to improve its position in the South China Sea with the hope that it will draw a minimal pushback. And of course, this window is timely since the ongoing talks on the core conduct has been stopped um, due to the virus. And you know, it's likely that China is doing all that in order to strengthen its position so that when talks restart, they could become a much stronger bargaining leverage over the other uh, parties in the core conduct talks. But right now, if we go back to what we saw as the broader strategic rivalry between China and the US, in the South China Sea. On that score, I agree with Ambassador Bilahari. We see a stalemate. We see here a posturing, counter-posturing between China and the US. Note that neither power has incentives to roll back their activities in the South China Sea. For China, rolling back is going to carry immense costs uh, from the domestic political perspective, especially when we talk about the political legitimacy of the CCP as well as Xi Jinping's personal prestige will be at stake, that is, for China. For the US, the rollback carries an immense cost as well, and in so far, its security commitments to the region is concerned, not least to mention that the South China Sea has featured very heavily in the free and open Indo-Pacific that the Trump administration has been advocating for the region. So, I mean, by and large, the South China Sea will be deemed as at least one of, if not the only litmus test of the US commitment to this strategy under the Trump administration. So there is no way the two sides will concede on the South China Sea. Yet, I would conclude by saying that both sides have no incentives to go to war. I think um, ultimately, 
they may do posturing, counter-posturing, but they have no appetite to have an open arm confrontation with each other. The one context I want to finally bring into is to consider that um, compared to back in the you know, old decades, uh, especially in the immediate post-Cold War uh, decades, I think what we saw as military confidence and security building mechanisms between China and the US um, in the past one decade or so are uh, actually more developed than before. Therefore, they will serve as some sort of a pressure valve to prevent or to mitigate the risk of military confrontation. So notwithstanding the broader uh, geopolitical dynamics or competition we see between China and the US, it may not necessarily translate into these two countries coming to blows in the South China Sea because of what I see as predominantly domestic concerns that the two countries are grappling with. And with the pandemic, it might potentially become worse uh, in the coming years. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you, Colin. Uh, we'll now move on to Dr. Abdullah Babud to take us to the Persian Cup. Um, thank you, uh, Amin. And uh, um, I want to also echo what uh, has been said uh, by Ambassador Balhari and uh, Dr. Uh, Colin Cole. And, uh, to, and just to take you a little bit from uh, the South uh, China Sea to, to the Middle East and see if we can make some linkages there. Well, as you know, um, the, uh, uh, the Americans um, reluctantly uh, moved in into the Gulf in the 1970 to, uh, for you know, Pax Americana to replace Pax Britannica, as it were. And from uh, both of the ground, from offshore balancing, they got much more entangled and involved in uh, Middle Eastern conflicts. Um, They've had ups and downs uh, in this. They made a lot of mistakes as well uh, uh, in the process. And currently, uh, or at least uh, during the uh, Obama administration, there was the talk of the pivot to Asia. Now, whether one believes that or not, uh, or was it uh, a real strategy or it was just uh, a part of uh, a strategy, it actually um, uh, made a lot of... Uh, change in the, in the Middle East, and especially in the Gulf countries. And since then, we have seen Gulf states starting to take matters into their uh, own hands and becoming much more active and, and, uh, and even you know, military active uh, in, in many ways. And uh, they wanted to become less reliant on the United States, given the fact that not only uh, the announcement of the pivot, but also certain US policies uh, that made them um, think twice about you know, how committed is the United States to, uh, to their own security. And just to you know, mention, it's just the, the, the uh, conflict with Iran and the uh, attacks on the, uh, um, on, on the oil tankers in the Sea of Oman and uh, of course the Aramco installations, etc. Uh, and, and that made the Gulf states think seriously about, you know, what, what is, uh, uh, you know, what, where, where should they uh, uh, take their security and how they sh should deal with it. Um, having said that, um, I don't think I'm letting uh, out a secret here, the Gulf states themselves are not in agreement between themselves. And they are in competition and they are in conflict uh, between themselves. And I, here I mean about the, even within the GCC states, 
but within uh, between the GCC and also Iran, Iraq, uh, and of course the war in Yemen. Um, so if there is anything that uh, one can describe the region at the moment is the total chaos, uh, and unfortunately. And I think the, the United States is uh, uh, aware of this, and they are, uh, I think, um, you know, not totally ignoring uh, uh, the, the difficulties and they're not pulling out because it's still uh, for them, despite the fact that they're, um, they start to have their own oil, shale oil, etc. <coughs> Um, they're still very much dependent on, uh, you know, the, the security and uh, stability of, of the region because, uh, you know, of many reasons, including that the fact that oil uh, uh, is a strategic uh, commodity and even though they're not importing as much as they used to, uh, uh, in their role as the hegemonic power uh, ensures that they, you know, they really care for uh, the region. As well as, of course, there are other reasons, you know, fight against uh, radicalization and terrorism, etc., that makes them uh, involved in the region. And the competition, of course, between the United States and, uh, and Iran or the, uh, the conflict between them that uh, keeps the United States interested in, in the region to a certain extent. They are not certainly moving. I agree with the, uh, with the previous speakers, uh, you know, they're not changing uh, strategically their, uh, their, their uh, positions. However, I think there is a recalibration of, uh, 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 of their policies, and I think they want to get uh, the regional countries to be much more involved in uh, guaranteeing their own security, and also they want to get some international uh, countries that benefit from the region to do some burden sharing. Now, when it comes to this, this is becomes quite tricky. You know, how does China come uh, into uh, uh, to play here? Uh, but also Russia. Um, obviously, uh, the Americans want to keep the Chinese and the Russians out, uh, despite the fact that the Chinese and the Russians are uh, started to move in and started to gain some inroads into into the region. As you know, China has already has. Um, Two bases, at least in the region. One is in uh, Djibouti, uh, in East Africa, and the other one is uh, in uh, Jawadar in Pakistan, uh, which is really close to uh, to the Gulf and to Strait of Hormuz. Um, they realize how important is the uh, is the region, and how important is, of course, the uh, oil supplies and the security of the Strait of Hormuz. Um, uh, as you know, uh, out of uh, almost 13.6 uh, million barrels that, that passes through uh, the Strait of Hormuz, almost 26% of that goes to China. Um, and China is, is becoming more more dependent on, on the Gulf, and, and, and as uh, uh, Ambassador and Chairman Ambassador Belahari had mentioned, you know, when you are a major trade uh, nation, you need to move in and also protect your trade routes. So I, I think China is certainly uh, finding or trying to find ways to uh, to move in. Their their uh, uh, ships are around. Um, uh, their naval ships are around in, in the region, trying to protect, um, you know, against piracy, etc. Um, the Russians have come up with a proposal whereby they wanted it to be um, implemented through the uh, Security Council. Uh, but the Americans basically brushed it aside and they're not interested uh, in talking about that. And, and the, the Russian proposal is much more uh, inclusive, comprehensive, uh, you know, um, 
based on the United Nations, if you like, principles and resolutions. And, and no one is interested apart from, of course, China that supported it and Iran uh, uh, that, that supported it. So who else is, uh, 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 is trying to do something in the region? Of course, the, um, um, the Iranians came up with a proposal called the, uh, the uh, uh, Hormuz uh, Hope uh, pro uh, project. And basically, uh, that, that, that uh, proposal calls for the withdrawal of international powers from the region and for the countries of the region to um, uh, create their own security architecture, which is obviously not going to go anywhere uh, uh, with that, because uh, for the countries in the region, especially the smaller Gulf states, American uh, security umbrella is paramount to them. And I think the, 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 the Gulf countries are now facing a really serious uh, issue, and that is they are, for, their secure, for their prosperity and economic well-being, they're much more, becoming much more dependent on Russia and, and, and China, while for their uh, uh, military security, uh, they are dependent on, uh, on the US and, and the West. And I think they will come under a lot of pressure to, uh, to choose sides. Um, uh, one way or the other, and I, I think they are trying to navigate through very uh, difficult uh, waters. Now, um, the French has also started their own initiative through the EU, and they created uh, with uh, other eight uh, uh, EU member states, and they created some, uh, uh, some kind of a European maritime aware awareness uh, to protect the Strait of Hormuz. So here, you know, we have the Europeans coming back, uh, uh, if you like. Um, and uh, the U.S. has also created uh, another uh, operation called Operation uh, Sentinel, and that included uh, beyond uh, the U.S. also Australia, Bahrain, Israel, the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and, and the U.K. Uh, uh, as well. Um, again, with, to protect the, uh, uh, the Strait of Hormuz. Um, Japan and South Korea are also uh, moving uh, uh, in because they both countries are dependent on uh, uh, on oil from from the region. So what we are seeing is a really messy picture, um, and of course we should not forget uh, the whole uh, idea of MESA, the Middle East uh, uh, Security Initiative that was. Uh, announced by uh, President Trump, which of course hasn't gone anywhere, but includes all the regional powers. Uh, this messy picture is going to continue for a very long time because you know the conflict between Iran and uh, and uh, uh, the United States and also the region, some of the regional states. Uh, hopefully, uh, if or you know, looking if you like ahead, if if there was a change in the leadership of the United States after. Uh, November, uh, we see some change in this policy. We could perhaps see some kind of a rapprochement and, uh, between Iran and the United States. You could see some uh, resemblance, uh, going back some resemblance of the GCPOA. Uh, and uh, perhaps that will reduce tension uh, in, in the region where we can have uh, a much more uh, robust uh, regional structure that includes uh, all the regional country that is inclusive, comprehensive, uh, and, and includes, uh, I feel like, international powers. But I think as far as the United States is concerned, they will want to keep Russia out, and they want to keep China out at all costs uh, at the moment. 
And I think I should uh, end there, if you like. Uh, I mean, thank you very much. Thank you so much, uh, Dr. Abdullah. Now we'll ask here, if anyone has any question, you can either unmute yourself and speak, or you can raise your hand, and uh, or you can type out the question, and I will present it to our speakers. Uh, but before opening it up to everyone else, I want to throw in a couple of questions for our speakers today. One is uh, specifically maybe for um, Bilahari and, and, and Colin, is that even if there is no large-scale confrontation between the U.S. and China, as you suggested that it seems like, and or if it happens, it'll be at very good grave cost. What about slow, uh, slow, uh, sort of small level conflict or low level conflict? Do you think that would continue for a while? Uh, because in the Middle East, we're familiar that you know that that uh, no large scale war doesn't mean no war. It just means that it's being fought in other scales. Uh, so what would that mean? And also, secondly, like uh, part of taking control of an of an oceanic space comes with a sense of responsibility as well. So it means that you have to uh, do certain services such as combating piracy or resolving conflicts between two smaller powers. Do you see China taking an additional role in those capacities as well in this area where, where they're more, um, I know they have some small scale piracy operation, but will they be more sort of upfront, more aggressive with that? And would you see also them standing in as an arbitrator for other states in resolving conflict? Or will that role continue to be the US as the ultimate arbitrator? Thank you. Either one of you. Uh, Bilal, you're on mute. Sorry. Uh, I think there's very one, one very fundamental difference between what's happening in the South China Sea and what's happening in the Gulf. China claims as its domestic sea, under, uh, under the duration of its domestic law, uh, most of the South China Sea. Nobody has done that in the Persian Gulf. Right? So what China does even if it is ostensibly for the common good, let's say putting down pirates, has a completely different signature in the South China Sea uh, and will, will, um, will elicit a much more ambiguous response, particularly from the claimant states. Because it will be an assertion of their domestic law in the South China Sea, rather than acting on the behalf of a global commons. And that's a very fundamental difference. Second, you know, that said, I have to say, and please don't misunderstand me, all the actors in the South China Sea are far more rational than all the actors in the Persian Gulf. <laughs> right? It's not that nobody has resorted to force. China has, Vietnam has, but in the 70s, in the early 80s. Uh, and then there have been occasional skirmishes. The kind of things that you see the Iranian Revolutionary Guard doing you know, with their speedboats and that kind of thing. Uh, uh, and you kind of see the other, the other side planting mines on, on boats and all that has not so far, and I don't think will happen in the South China Sea. If there is a conflict, it will be by accident. And if there is an accident between the US and China, I think both of them will, will 
do the utmost to contain it as quickly as possible. That's the difference, I think. Can I add something to that? Yeah, of course you must. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, I think there are a few things to set into context. I think one is to note that for the South China Sea, I mean, the South China Sea is actually a large body of water uh, in all in all. Uh, if you look at the existing uh, mapping of the sea rocks that run through the South China Sea, much of the most uh, heavily used sea rocks don't run through you know, the disputed waters uh, for the most part. They actually hug the coast of the surrounding littoral states. For example, Vietnam's coast, and of course, along the Chinese coast near to Hainan. The reason is largely pragmatic. I mean, one is, of course, you know, if not for other reasons, uh, shippers, they will tend to avoid uh, contentious areas. They don't get mired into, you know, uh, political issues. That's one. Second is that, you know, if you talk about, you know, hugging the coast of the littoral states in the South China Sea, it gives them much radial access to help if they need it. For example, if they are being you know, attacked by pirates, then the concerned states could actually come to their aid. I give this context because it actually leads us on a very different understanding of how or what we see in the Persian Gulf and or the Gulf of Aden uh, by and large, uh, and of course the South China Sea, where you know, it's very difficult to actually come up with a very robust type of cooperation uh, where all the stakeholders in the region could come together on a common framework, say, you know, a South China Sea counter-piracy initiative that would be similar to what we saw in the Malacca Strait, for example. That is not likely to happen. Uh, in a few years ago, there was some discussion about, you know, potentially joint patrols in the southern end of the South China Sea. And, and those were not disputed waters, by the way. But of course, the media tend to complete it with South China Sea. And then it always gives um, the connotation that, you know, it will be in the disputed waters. That's not true. Even in the undisputed waters. But, you know, nonetheless, there are, there are porous borders. And there are still those, you know, um, you know unresolved issues uh, of sovereignty. Even with that, it's not possible to come up with cooperation. And that actually limits China's options when it comes to providing those so-called public goods, for example, counterparty in the South China Sea. I understand there are some discussions between China Coast Guard with the regional counterparts on you know, tackling non-traditional security issues. But I think on this score, I think China is a, a bit more cautious. Um, when cooperation isn't very forthcoming on that, on that front, then it is you know, even less likely that China will want to adopt a more muscular approach in being the only provider of security at the expense of you know, infringing upon other countries' sovereignty and their jurisdiction in their waters. So I think this is something that I want to you know, provide a context to. Thank you so much. Thank you. Abdullah, do you want to add something? Um, yeah, well, if, if you like, uh, I think there is a linkages between um, the, you know, the uh, Strait of Malacca uh, the uh, uh, Hormuz Strait and also the Bab al-Mandum Strait. Uh, and these, these, if you like, tra traditional but becoming much more important um, maritime routes are, uh, are becoming very, very critical uh, now. And I think we're going to see some competition that is going to take place as to who is going to control these uh, maritime routes. Um, now, for China, of course, 
it's more it's, it's uh, you know most priority goes of course to its neighboring uh, uh, region and i think in the Ch uh, china defense um, uh, paper that was called the china defense in the new era was uh, i think uh, published in july 2009 <laughs> they talk about even uh, the idea of using force uh, and uh, when it comes to uh, the region here South, South uh, East Asia, and especially what is known as the nine dash line or 10 dash line or 11 dash line, however one wants to describe that. Um, I, I think, um, you know, the, the situation I agree uh, with uh, previous speakers, it's different in the Gulf. Uh, China has interest, of course, uh, its interest is growing, uh, but um, it, 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 it knows that this is not like its top priority. Uh, uh, for, for China, and it wants to avoid conflict at all costs there. And I think it wants to avoid conflict in Southeast uh, uh, Asia as well, and the South China Sea. Um, however, um, you know, uh, one should really look at their China defense uh, strategy that was published. And unfortunately, in that, they actually say uh, uh, specifically that uh, when it comes to this region they, uh, or to their vital interest, they have threatened to use force. That's the only time in, in, in during that uh, document, if you like, they have talked about using force, which is a bit scary, I think, in, in a sense, but you know, to, to what extent one would believe that. Thank you. Okay, thank you. We have a question from S.Y. Wong, and it is, to what extent do you think a strategy of compartmentalization of the South China Sea issue while maintaining broader sino-bilateral ties is workable for both claimant states and non-claimant states like Singapore? Well, a simple answer is it has worked. It is working. The spillover is not very much. Colin, do you have a response to that? No, I agree with uh, Ambassador Hari on this. It's not there's no spillover, huh? but it's minimal, it's manageable. Mm. It's neither in China's interest nor any of the ASEAN countries, including the Cayman states, to let this contaminate the entire relationship. Okay, if, if anyone has any questions, you can uh, raise your hand and we'll uh, and we can unmute you, or you can send it in to typing. Yeah, we have a question from Alex. Uh, Alex, uh, do you want to uh, ask Alex from Melbourne Law School? Do you want to ask your question? Hi. Um, uh, good evening from Melbourne. Um, uh, thank you for your presentations. Um, I'm, I'm Alex Lillafus. I am doing a PhD at Melbourne Law School. And um, I was just wondering, you know, I have noticed that big power competition has been a prominent way by which relations with the sea have been described or understood. And I was just wondering whether, um, to what extent, or what is the scope for the notion of the global commons in this kind of framing? About um, uh, about the sea as a, a big power competition, and does that differ in specific maritime contexts? Thank you. 
Let me just say very briefly, uh, perhaps controversially, uh, I do not believe international law is an autonomous reality. It is a myth we choose to believe in in order that we may occasionally live in a civilized manner. Most of the time, international law, including the concept of a global commons, is an instrument of state's policy. When it's convenient, it will use it. When it's not convenient, it will not use it. Don't mistake international law for something like the law of gravity. In fact, all law is a social construct. Domestic law, much less so. International law, much more so. It is just an instrument of state policy. And when it's convenient to state interests, they will use it. When it's not convenient, they will disregard it. That's the fact. Colin, you want to add something? Yeah, uh, I, I just want to add on to that. I mean, the thing is that, uh, I mean, the, the idea of a global maritime commons, uh, it has been there for the longest time. Uh, we talk about, you know, all types, various types of cooperation between, you know, both the coastal states and, of course, the user states. Uh, if we go by UNCLOS itself, I mean, it's not a perfect document, but it is what we call Constitution of the Oceans, where we talk about the various maritime zones and the type of relationship and behavior and interactions that the various stakeholders can have with each other. We, when we talk about, you know, for example, uh, territorial waters, EEZ, that has been a problem. Uh, the issue here is that, of course, for the EEZ uh, regime, it has always been a contested issue because of the ambiguities that are enshrined within the, the EEZ regime in UNCLOS as to what we mean by due regard uh, between the coastal states and the user states. But there are always room for cooperation. Uh, for the EEZ, you don't really want to call that a global maritime commons uh, except to acknowledge that high seas rules do apply in the EEZ. But that can be problematic. If you talk about high seas, these are areas where you know, it is possible for these countries to come and cooperate. But in the recent years, even these so-called high seas are becoming increasingly controversial, I would say. I mean, one example, uh, to bring us away from the South China Sea and the Persian Gulf, we go all the way up north, is the Arctic, Arctic. for example. The Arctic. I mean, the, the thing is that, I mean, the, the Arctic littoral states have been arguing uh, and, I mean, at, in certain varying degrees on, you know, how to demilitarize or to prevent the militarization of the Arctic. And much of Arctic itself uh, is pristine, is untapped when it comes to, you know, sea lines of communication or resources. But in very recent years, Arctic is going to become uh, increasingly contentious because if you look at China's case, using these, you know, global maritime commerce approach to that, it labeled itself or what we call, a, they call a near-Arctic state, which is a label that is unprecedented. Uh, it has no standing in, in legally uh, when it comes to, you know, any other instruments that we saw. The Spitsbergen Treaty has no such label for, you know, observers of the Arctic that is outside the Arctic region. But, you know, how these countries, for geopolitical reasons, will tap on and exploit the whole notion of global maritime commerce to pursue their aims, I think it's something that we need to watch in the coming years. I think China's case in the Arctic is uh, one example to watch after. Abdullah, do you want to add something? Um, I, I totally agree with the previous speaker. So, you know, for the sake of time, I'll, uh, um, I won't add anything here.
Okay. Yeah, while we wait for uh, another question, I want to ask, um, I mean, since we're already on this issue of uh, the global commons, so that's, I mean, one thing that I've always wondered is, is, is I've always thought that, that this, um, this idea of, of, of commons works best when there is a single power in charge. And you've already, uh, and Bilai, you initially mentioned that, that there has always been competition in US and sort of, uh, you know, unilateralism was, was a small period. But maybe I'm not sure about that in the seas because the Soviets were never um, an oceanic power to that same extent. And even if we go before the uh, two earlier periods when you had the British Pax Britannica, Britain was uh, by and large the only uh, power at sea where you had other land powers but only with sea. Or, or, and even if we go earlier, you had the Spanish and the Portuguese. Any small power was essentially pirate mm. and large power was the only real authority. Mm. So uh, would you see some kind of reversion overall, like sort of that this kind of this bilateral position where there's two legitimate large powers at sea as a sustainable long-term thing? Look, I, again, I repeat, I don't think international law is an autonomous reality. Uh, it is an instrument of national interest. Let's give you an example. And when, it, when they, they will cooperate when their interests coincide. Mm. Uh, in 1971, Malaysia and Indonesia said that uh, I forgot the, the exact legal terminology. They said the Straits of Malacca is not an international straits. Uh, it belongs to either of them. I mean, uh, imme immediately, without any prior coordination that I know of, the Seventh Fleet and the Soviet Pacific Fleet sent ships to sail up and down, you know, just to tell them, piss off, you are wrong <laughs> and you can't stop me. And if I have no doubt that if the PLA had a Navy at that time, they would have sent ships too. When people have something in common, common interest, they will cooperate. It is not, international regimes are instruments of foreign policy. They don't exist independent of countries' foreign policies. And actually, I dispute this whole idea of global commons, you know. I, it's a nice idea, it's an aspiration, you know. So we should keep it alive, that's about it. If I could chime in, uh, I just want to sort of uh, put in uh, my own perspective to uh, what uh, I mean you just mentioned. I'm not so sure how you would characterize the former Soviet Union as a, essentially an isolated power uh, that isn't that interested in the global maritime commons. Back then, the Soviet Navy, in, in most respect, I mean, not counting the fact that didn't have many aircraft carriers compared to US Navy back then. It was an ocean-going Navy by and large. And it actually goes be it went beyond its immediate waters in Europe and in the Far East, uh, so, or the Soviet Far East. Actually, it went all the way down the Indian Ocean. It has a permanent presence in the Indian Ocean as well. So for the PLA Navy, I would suspect, you know, this is going to be, you know, more or less the case. And that, of course, you know, does give avenues for cooperation uh, as and when it's expedient. I mean, we look at the case of the Gulf of Aden, even though China isn't part of the combined task force 151, 
it does cooperate as an independent deployer with CTF 151 as and when required. And of course, you know, in the same manner, it cooperates with the uh, EU naval forces in the Gulf of Aden. So depending on the circumstances, depending on the political expediency, they do cooperate despite the differences in the views that they hold actually. Yeah. Okay, we're gonna to go to, we've received some questions. Richard Huang has asked, ASEAN has initiated the rule of engagement till now. Don't seem to go anywhere. Why? Within ASEAN, seems not unify in approach. Where, where do we see from here? Seems, what are you talking uh, about rules of engagement? I don't understand what he means by rules of engagement. You mean the code of conduct, declaration of conduct? Uh, if you could uh, clarify, Richard Wang. Or we can, he said yes. Okay, I take it as I take it as you are talking about the declaration of conduct and code of conduct. These are again nice ideas, but personally, I when I was in the foreign ministry, I would never admit it. But now I'm out, I can. They're very stupid ideas. They will never work. <laughs> Look, China claims the entire South China Sea, almost right. If I was China, why should I tie my hands with a declaration of conduct or a code of conduct? These are diplomatic games we play. And I think we in the ASEAN countries are not that stupid. Huh? We also play these diplomatic games as a means of engagement. It's because it is better to talk than fight. Huh? Mm. That basically is. Mm. The only codes of conduct that will really matter is between the 7th Fleet and the PLA Navy about unplanned encounters at sea. And by and large, they have unwritten codes of conduct for that mm. right now. Mm. Right? No, but look, not just China. If I am a claimant state, right, and I claim a certain chunk of South China Sea, even not a very big chunk, mm. why on earth would I want to tie my hands? It's mine. So why should I submit myself, limit my authority in what I consider my own territory mm. uh, to somebody else? unless it, it can be useful to me as an instrument of policy. Mm. But right now, I don't see anybody, not China, thinking it's so. Mm. Right? Why should China uh, tie its hands? China, don't forget, I come back to this point, believes its domestic law has jurisdiction over most of the South China Sea. Mm. The things that Colin mentioned at the beginning, this new administrative regions and all that, that's the, the essence of what they are trying to do is to say, this is mine. This is part of China. I let you use it because I'm a nice guy by my leave and favor. But you don't tie my hands. China is discussing a code of conduct with ASEAN because this is what diplomats do. It's better for us to talk than fight. <laughs> so, if I could add to um, Ambassador's point, uh, to elaborate further is to probably understand uh, more deeply, what are the motivations behind having these agreements in the first place? For China, it is in so much as to actually try to exclude other actors from the South China Sea. It must give a reason, a justification to say that we don't need other people to come into matter in the South China Sea. The Court of Conduct is supposed to achieve that for China by showing or proving, I mean, whether you doubt it or, or not, that you know Asian countries or the littoral countries in the South China Sea are able to manage the disputes on their own without 
having to involve other people. And by that, you know, primarily it will refer to the US. That's what. For ASEAN, by and large, the core conduct is useful in so far it is meant to reassert and to highlight the relevance of the organization by itself. I mean, if you go and look deeply into the existing single draft negotiating text, it is actually quite telling. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Leaving document. Negotiating text. It's yeah. a collection of everybody's ideas. Yeah, exactly. And if you look at the existing the paper basket where everybody threw their things in it. Yes, it is um, a nine-page document that is, I think, quite painstaking to break apart because every country just threw everything to the basket, as what Ambassador mentioned. Yeah. And you find that there's one thing that is very characteristic is that there, were, there are no lack of proposals on having those practical cooperation like fishery management and all that. But very, very, very few proposals on binding their hands when it comes to confidence building and security building measures. Vietnam is the only country that borders to actually define what do we mean by militarization in the South China Sea. The rest kept conspicuously silent on, on that issue, which thereby reinforced the idea that nobody actually wants to bind their hands, but they are very keen to put forth those diplomatic niceties on they, the fact that they can cooperate in the South China Sea. Whether it's going to be effective in managing disputes in the South China Sea, I have very serious doubts uh, as to what it is. If you ask me, can turn back the clock, it's actually better that at the very least, we don't even talk about the court conduct. We, can, we should just stick to the existing declaration on conduct our parties in the South China Sea that was signed in November 2002. We stick with that, we, we build on it, instead of putting us on a higher bar and then potentially we find ourselves falling even harder at the end. Yeah, that's all. Don't worry, lah, Colin, nobody has high expectations, lah, so you won't <laughs> fall. <lah>. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. We have another question from Sean Se uh, from Cambridge University. Uh, Sean asks, Colin, you mentioned that plan that US and military relations provide a sort of pressure valve to mounting tensions for posturing. I wonder if the panelists could more clearly articulate how something like naval diplomacy, sometimes remembered by post-colonial nations as gunboat, gunboat diplomacy, can possibly encourage reconciliation rather than antagonism. How does naval diplomacy fit into the broader practice of foreign relations? And is there a difference in how big navies, such as the U.S. Navy or the, or, or the Chinese Navy, and small navies can do so? Well, uh, if I could um, tell on this question, uh, I mean, from, in my mind, there is a difference between naval diplomacy in the traditional sense, where we talk about port calls and all these various type of uh, very positive engagements between uh, the various navies. And on the other hand, there is what James Cable in his book described uh, very fittingly as gunboat diplomacy is a, a much different connotation of how naval instrument is being used. Um, by the definition of gunboat diplomacy, it refers to the limited threat or use of the naval force. And of course, naval force these days can be expanded into other realms of uh, instruments that deal with the maritime. So you, if you want to apply it to coast guards, you want to apply it to air forces, uh, such as you know, the recent B-1 uh, overflights of the, over the South China Sea, all these could be co even considered as gunboat diplomacy in South and other. But the thing is that, you know, one thing about naval diplomacy is that it is never immune to broader political intrigues. I mean, we tend to try to convince ourselves sometimes that there's a difference between operational 
uh, trust and strategic trust between the various actors such that you know they could take place in isolation from each other. In this case, when it comes to say for example in the East China Sea, there are instances where even between China and Japan when, when ties were, were on a pretty downside uh, in the recent decade, there are actually some existing cooperation between the two navies uh, in the East China Sea. But in the South China Sea, it might not be as straightforward because in the first place, in the South China Sea, we don't see that much uh, interactions between the various navies in the region. Not to even mention that, you know, if you discount the broader ASEAN uh, type of multilateral exercises, these are largely very showcase, uh, more for photo uh, exercise opportunities type of thing. Naval diplomacy in this part of the world, I would say, is rather underdeveloped. And, and in most part, uh, pretty much, uh, you know, subject to the broader political winds. So it is very hard to actually pursue a more institutionalized, a more long-term type of these sort of in interactions other than what we saw as bilateral ones that exist between uh, long-standing allies and partners. Like for example, between the US and its allies and partners in Southeast Asia, yes. But with China, it's problematic, I would say. Can I just add one thing? I think the question uh, is based on a false premise. First of all, all armed forces are essentially coercive, no matter what you use them for. Secondly, diplomacy is not just about being nice. Coercion is also part of diplomacy. Mm -hmm. So the distinction between naval diplomacy and gunboat diplomacy is, there is a distinction, but it's distinction on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. If I send a ship, a landing ship tank, to send supplies to you for humanitarian purposes, it is a humanitarian purpose, but it's also a reminder, I have a landing ship tank that it, it is sending supplies today, but tomorrow it may be sending tanks. <laughs> All right? So yeah. don't make the distinction too clear. Mm. Indeed. Okay, we have another question from Julius Schmidt. And I think, assuming on reason for the, one reason for the South China Sea conflict is securing trade routes, 80% of oil gas supply for China is passing the Straits of Malacca. One approach to mitigate this dependency was to invest in pipelines in Burma. As a result, the US and Japan also increased their political pressure on Burma. Why is the US not allowing China to reduce its dependency? It I don't see the US not allowing China to reduce the dependency. Where? It would maybe reduce the tension on the South China Sea, yes. No, no, look. Is anybody stopped anybody uh, moving? Has anybody stopped oil tankers moving through the South China Sea? Or the Straits of Malacca or the Sunda Straits or the Lombok Straits? Nobody. This is contingency planning that all militaries have to go through. It doesn't mean that this, it's an actuality that somebody is going to, to stop your oil tank because that's a causes bad life. It's a, you know, uh, pipelines are frankly uh, uh, as, as vulnerable. <laughs> mm as tankers, and probably more vulnerable because they are fixed, they are fixed targets. Mm. Uh, ships can at least move around, you know. Yeah. So these things, these are all very theoretical. Every armed force in the world has to go through this kind of contingency planning. Mm. If not, they're not doing their job, they'll be irresponsible. It doesn't mean they really expect things to uh, happen. Now, if I was China, I would do this too, because right now, my oil supply is essentially from the Persian Gulf to, 
to wherever I'm bringing it, is essentially being protected by the American 5th and 7th Fleet. Now, that's intolerable for me to, to, to continue that. I have to develop my own capabilities. <laughs> yeah. Just to add on to the point, I mean, in the early, early part of the, of the decade, uh, there is a sort of budding Chinese literature on what they call a Malacca dilemma. I think that is where you yeah. know, all these discussions came about. Um, where, you know, the Malacca Strait uh, in particular is seen as the soft underbelly of China. That is very theoretical because, you know, so far there is, uh, other than the use of existing examples of how the U.S. used force in other parts of the world, um, the Chinese did not actually provide a convincing argument by which any power would potentially strangle is oil supply other than the hypothetical scenario of a war in this part of the uh -huh. world? If there's a war, there will, it will happen. But there's no war. Yeah. What, what, it's, it's all yeah. theory. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I think the Chinese is also now building pipelines to Russia to lessen their uh, commitment uh, or to, to lessen their uh, dependence on, on this. Yeah. yeah. It lessens their dependence on the sea. It creates new dependencies to Russia. <laughs> Exactly. There is no such thing as zero risk. It's always risk mitigation. Absolutely, yes. Yeah. In fact, the only country in the world that has tried to interfere with oil supplies is Iran. Ang Kai Lip asks, the Malaysian Agong alluded to the South China Sea in a speech at the parliament yesterday. Yeah. Can you draw the conclusion that Malaysia will take more aggressive stance in the South China Sea under the Moyuddin administration? I think it would be premature to draw that conclusion. Yeah. yeah. If I could further to that is that if you look at successive administration, be it whether it's under the Barisan National Government, be it under the Pakatan Government or under the current Perikatan Government, I think we see more or less you know, a very uh, standard set of patterns here that will lead to one conclusion that Malaysia, by and large, doesn't want to rock the boat with China. And if you have seen the uh, MFA statement coming out from Malaysia uh, in the aftermath of the West Capella standoff, that statement is as ambiguous as you can get, but you know, it's very typical Malaysia, right? That you know, it doesn't call out anyone uh, by name, and yet trying to put forth a very ambiguous position on that particular standoff. In the longer term, I mean, I wouldn't see Malaysia, I mean, I mean, this is not a conclusion I'm going to draw from the speech, but I would put forth a sort of prognosis towards the future. Look, Malaysia right now, with the Perikatan government, I think there is a legitimacy issue at stake. I mean, the no confidence vote uh, didn't come to pass, yes, but you know, the government remained uh, you know, under question when it comes to its legitimacy. And there is, after all, still a debt power that was inherited uh, from the previous government. And on top of that, there is not a pandemic-induced economic hardship on the country. With that in mind, it would not be strange or even you know, um, uncalled for to even conclude that Malaysia does depend on China and will depend on China for all sorts of things like investments and access to market. And the fact that Malaysian um, you know, policymakers as well as you know, business uh, lobby identified China for the potential post-pandemic recovery 
uh, that will benefit Malaysia's own economy. So, I mean, for these considerations, it will be difficult to conclude that Malaysia would in the future take a much harder stance, but we'll see it in a more subtle way. I mean, say for example, ramping up uh, engagement with friendly powers like, you know, the Americans or the Australians in terms of, you know, military exercises. But, you know, on the other front of directly confronting China, I think this is probably a, a little bit too much of a stretch to imagine. So I think uh, in Western political science theory, international relations theory, uh, hedging, bandwagoning, and balancing are alternatives. In Southeast Asia, they do all simultaneously. Hmm. Right? Look, Najib government was in hock to China up to its eyeballs. But it did not stop the Seventh Fleet from calling at Malaysian ports. It did not stop uh, American surveillance aircraft flying missions occasionally out of Malaysian air bases. I don't know whether the Perikatan government has continued this, but they will continue this in due course because they have to get along with China, they have to get along with America. They have to bandwagon with China for economic benefit. They will find some way of uh, maintaining or developing the relationship with the US in order to balance. Huh? And they will hedge by developing relationships with Japan, with South Korea, with everybody. Yeah, we have another question from Benedict Chong, and he asks, it seems that in spite of the great power posturing in the South China Sea, conflict is unlikely to happen or escalate into full-scale conflict. But this cannot be said of the Persian Gulf. How much of this do you think is due to centrality of mm. ASEAN? I think it has much more to do with the kinds of actors in Southeast Asia vis-a-vis -vis the kinds of actors in the Persian Gulf. We don't have an Iran in Southeast Asia. China is not Iran. Mm. Abdullah, do you want to add something to it too? Well, I, I, I agree with the ambassador. There is more, much more rationality uh, in this part of the world, and there are also a lot of uh, uh, conflict resolution uh, mechanisms or arrangements that have been put in, in place. What the Middle East in general and the Gulf in particular lacks is, is uh, both rationality and also some kind of a, a structure, uh, um, you know, that, that they can actually meet and discuss uh, and uh, reduce tension. We don't have that. Um, at the moment, Iran is playing, if you like, uh, uh, this game, but it's also because it feels that it is under uh, sanctions and under uh, under pressure, you know, the, the crippling sanctions, the maximum pressure pushes Iran to, um, you know, to kind of uh, uh, find ways to, uh, uh, you know, poke the Americans in their eyes and, their, and the countries. And if this continues, we're just going to have more uh, problems. This is why the region uh, in the Middle East in general and the Gulf in particular needs some kind of uh, uh, an arrangement, you know, uh, some kind of a, a, a mechanism that um, not only uh, averts conflicts and uh, build uh, confidence-building uh, measures, but also, um, you know, move towards cooperation uh, and, uh, and and coordination. And uh, you know, the, the, we we need to learn from Asia, and I think there are a lot of 
there are a lot of uh, lessons that we uh, we can learn from the Asian experience. I think Colin and I were recently in, uh, in the Dead Sea. Uh, do you recall that? And uh, uh, we we were talking about something similar to uh, uh, to, to this. So I think time time has come that the Middle East uh, does you know uh, learn something from the Asian experience, but also other countries' experience. You know, European experience is also quite mm. relevant uh, uh, to a certain extent. Mm. Okay, uh, we're going to take, uh, I think we have a bunch of questions and short of time, so we'll try to get them quickly. Uh, John Han, uh, you asked, China has a policy of non-military interference and is averse to defense partnerships. However, China has established bases in Djibouti and conducted military exercises with Iran. Do you think that China's security posturing is changing? And if so, will it seek to challenge or supplement the U.S.'s position in the Gulf like it has in South China Sea and East Asia? Uh, look, the Chinese posture was a making a virtue of lack of capability. As his capabilities develop, it will do more. It's a major power. This is how major powers behave. Uh, if anyone else can have a question, should we go to the next question? Respond. Okay. Uh, we can go, Naomi Musao asks, looking at China's land reclamation activities in the South China Sea, what implication will this have to the future of the laws of the sea and specifically maritime delimitation as we know it? Well, if you could ask, uh, I would provide an assessment to that is that, you know, it wouldn't have any impact on the law of the sea, legally speaking. I mean, the thing is that, you know, the fact that you build artificial islands in the South China Sea doesn't change the le original legal status of those features in the first place. It doesn't mean you build an island, can call that an island from now on. You can claim the full suite of maritime entitlements uh, under UNCLOS. That is not supposed to be, be how it works. I mean, but of course, on the ground, um, things can be very different. I mean, China will behave in a way that it wants to in this regard of UNCLOS in the first place. But so far, what we actually know about when it comes to the South China Sea is that China is more adamant in enforcing what they call a 12 nautical mile limit, um, you know, whereby within this limit, uh, no foreign military uh, activities should be taking place and that includes four knobs and they will respond in a much more decisive manner but outside the 12 nautical miles the argument goes that you know practically ships uh, of other countries can just go through um, you know in any way they want to uh, but of course that is not uh, discounting the fact that the Chinese do keep that under surveillance anyway uh, but you know so far that's what we saw uh, as I mentioned you know you build those islands it doesn't change the status whatsoever We have two questions about uh, the COVID crisis, both slightly uh, different. One is, uh, uh, S.Y. Wong is asking about how would this affect the military spending, specifically naval spending, the COVID financial crisis? Will, it, will we now see uh, countries sort of reducing their spending given that they had spent so much in the last decade? So that's one question. And another question is from Justin Chua, who's asking if the COVID crisis and Trump blaming China for it Will, will lead to growing tensions between China and the U.S. and how will this affect 
the South China Sea situation as well. Well, I'll answer the last question and I'll leave the other one to think. Obviously, it's going to make the, the relationship more tense. Hmm. It's not just the US blaming Trump. Uh, I mean, not just Trump blaming the Chinese. There are quite a number of countries wanting to hold the Chinese accountable. Uh, and the Chinese have retaliated in kind. I mean, conspiracy theories are not a monopoly of one country or the other, you know. Hmm. Uh, a lot of the anti-Chinese sentiment, by the way, in the world, before COVID and after, is of China's own doing, you know. <laughs> Remember that. We are in a new phase of US-China relations, which is going to be a prolonged phase. From 72, when they re-established relations, uh, there were moments of tension in, over Taiwan and other, and South China Sea and other uh, issues. But overall, the, the trajectory of the relationship was towards engagement. Now they have switched. They have switched quite fundamentally. There will still be engagement, moments of engagement, but the overall trajectory is towards strategic competition and more tension. I don't think there will be war, but this is the new normal of that relationship. Higher tension, lower tension. I will um, you know, bite on the question on uh, defense spending. Uh, I don't have on hand the available data or statistics that will point to the future due to COVID-19, but at least in this part of the world, Southeast Asia, which is what I'm primarily tracking, where we are now seeing signs of COVID-19 having an impact on defense spending. You look at uh, Thailand's case, Thailand has decided to slash 30% of its naval budget, uh, and that will affect downstream its existing contracts, uh, say with China. Um, so we probably won't see all three submarines coming to service very soon. We'll probably see one submarine coming in, and then funding will be deferred uh, in the coming future uh, for you no know, follow-on units. We see in the Philippines where you know there is a promise to keep to the uh, contracted uh, acquisitions and those in the pipeline, but there won't be any further new acquisitions uh, in play. So we see that you know COVID nineteen has some impact on especially you know the much smaller militaries uh, in this part of the world, in particular. Um, those countries that have traditionally been more preoccupied with spending more money on social security, they'll continue to do even more of that because of the pressing priorities that you know, will require them to make a change from the current pandemic crisis. Um, the fact that they have to put more money to healthcare uh, other than just into creating jobs is going to create a pressure on Southeast Asian countries by and large. And of course, we can project it further, we'll see that likely in Europe as well. Um, okay. I just uh, something uh, on this, I mean, I think uh, yes, yes. conspiracy, uh, conspiracy uh, theory aside, uh, is, uh, I think the transactional nature of uh, Trump is that he, he is not going to let an opportunity like this uh, go away without uh, taking an advantage of it uh, in his mm. negotiations with, uh, uh, especially trade negotiations with China, to get the best deal. Uh, so I think he's, he's doing, in a sense, a good job in terms of you know, um, using this uh, uh, COVID-19 as, um, you know, uh, something to kind of force China into uh, giving more, uh, if you like, um, uh, in, in terms of, you know, the, uh, the trade relationships that they, uh, they have. And especially that, you know, they've just signed the first agreement and the next agreement is uh, being negotiated. So this is a great opportunity for them. 
Uh, and that's most, most of the anti-Chinese feeling is created by China itself. I think Trump <laughs> is using it <laughs> uh, because if he tried to create it out of nothing, he would fail. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we have the link and maybe have the last question by Asif Shajai and we can take the closing comments with everyone from everyone. And it's Asif, Asif is, a, is from MEI as well. Thus, can any conflict in the world history be seen as comparable to the current South China Sea situation? Is there any situation currently in any other part of the world which could be compared to this conflict? Hmm. I didn't get the first part. Any in the U.S.-China conflict? The South, yeah, the South China Sea and the U.S.-China conflict. Is there any other conflict that's sort of similar in comparison? South China Sea and U.S. and the U.S.-China conflict are typical great power competitions. I don't see anything unique about them, either in their nature or their intensity. I think the question was, is there anything in the world that is comparable to it? Is that what he is like? Oh, oh okay. You have, you, have the, you have the tensions between Russia and Europe. You have Iran and its neighbors. These are major, these are the normal dynamics, I would call them, unfortunately, of international relations. And each one is different in many ways. Each one is different. It's, only, it's got its own peculiarities, yeah. but the essential if you want to get philosophical about it, the root cause is the nature of the state system and maybe human nature, which is evil. <laughs> Colin, would you like to add something to that? Oh, no, I have nothing uh, further to add to that. Okay, then we're almost out of, actually out of time as well. So thank you everyone for joining us today. I want to um, take time to applaud all the speakers today. Uh, thank you for an uh, invigorating lecture. And please, everyone, do join us uh, for our next upcoming session. Thanks well. for organizing it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you yeah. for having thank me. You. Thank you so much. Yes. Thank you. All right. See you. Thank you. See you. Thank you. Good thank to you. see you all. Bye-bye. Yeah, see you. Stay Hi, Colin. Good to see you again. Good to see you again. <laughs> Stay safe, <laughs> sir. Stay safe. <laughs> Stay safe. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much. Amir. Yeah, thank right. you. Bye, Colin. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank all you. Right. Thank you, Abdullah. Bye. See you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thanks, Abdullah. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Have a good day. Take care. Thanks. Well done. Bye.